Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Needs Some Introduction. In today's episode, I'll be breaking down the sixth episode of season one of The Peripheral on Amazon Prime, an episode called, and if you didn't notice, <laughs> here's the explicit warning for you. It's called Fuck You and Eat Shit. So there goes the explicit tag right out the window. Hopefully, you're not listening to this in the car with your kids. Also, I'll be discussing a new horror sci-fi series on Netflix from the creators of the cult hit Dark, the German horror sci-fi show, and another mostly sci-fi with a touch of horror series on Netflix now. And that show is called 1899. No, it's not part of the Yellowstone franchise, but it would be hilarious if someone accidentally watched this thinking that it somehow tied in with the Yellowstone series. The usual calls to action. We continue to cover the White Lotus here in this feed as well. If you're watching this show or that show or both shows, make sure you subscribe so you know when those episodes become available. Next week, Andor will be wrapping up its first season. And in this same slot, along with our coverage of the penultimate episode of The Peripheral, we will also be discussing the finale of the Andor series, the season one of that Andor series. And holiday schedules permitting, we'll, I'll have Ray and Nick with me again to discuss the show, which they've just caught up on recently. A perfect example of some hardcore Star Wars fans, you've probably heard them on this feed before, complaining about the Star Wars series, who reluctantly watch that show, but are very much enjoying it, as am I. It's a great, great show. Really using sci-fi, the genre itself, in the way you should, in my opinion, to explore these broader themes in this science fiction realm. An excellent season so far, and I'm sure the finale will be excellent, and you'll get our final reviews and thoughts on the upcoming season two, as well as we will be continuing to cover The White Lotus. And then in December, I think I have found a few shows for us to cover week to week in December. So stay tuned for that and subscribe so you know what is in store for the future of this recap series we have here. If you'd like to support the show, check out our backlog for other recap conversations you might enjoy or some music conversations. We have some music-only episodes, something I don't get to do as much of anymore, but maybe you might see a couple of those during the holidays as well. Make sure you recommend us to your friends and family or share us on your social medias and give us a five-star review on your podcatchers of choice to help other people find our podcast as well. With all of that out of the way, let's get into the breakdown of this episode. Just two more episodes beyond here for this season one of The Peripheral. I'll expect to see another season of this, to be honest. And that might be my critique of the show in general, but we'll get to it. You didn't tell me that Alita was in the Apram. I didn't know. Did you tell her what you did? When they took over your school? So this episode begins, we're in the year 2028, in what is called the Texas Outback. So it looks like there's been some kind of civil war potentially in the United States, or maybe a border war, war, unexplained at this point. Burton and Connor and the rest of his team are deployed and they see a dog is caught in a fence and is howling. This is basically, or explicitly, what we saw last week, this technology 
at the RI. No surprises here. And of course, that explosion we saw that took that soldier's limbs was indeed Connor. So we see Connor's origin story. Next, we see this woman walking on this beautiful countryside. This is Inspector Billings. And she's interrupted by this woman called Beatrice, who informs her that there's been a murder at the RI. The person who's been murdered is Daniel. And it turns out that the inspector has some relationship with Daniel. Maybe they worked in the police department at the same time at some point in the past. Daniel's throat has been cut by one of the coids, one of these AI assistants. Of course, we know that it was driven by Newland a couple of episodes back. But interestingly, we see that this idyllic locale is simply a projection and that they're actually on this rooftop of the police department, I assume, in London. And this is something that we discover over the course of this episode. So we actually see something explained that we saw all the way back in the very, very first scene of the very, very first episode, that when Wilf is meeting with Alita's peripheral in this youthful body, in this girl's body, the virtual camera seems to pan through this mist and this fog as if there's like a war raging at that moment. And at the time, I thought this was metaphorical, that this is London coming out of this war period. But it appears that there are parts of the city that are not yet rebuilt. So what we're actually seeing when we see this beautiful, idyllic version of London at this time is actually a projection, is an image that's being projected into the mind of the viewer via the peripheral or the implant into the body of the the humans in the future, people like Wilf, for example. Back in North Carolina, 1932, Tommy's trying to figure out what happened with this accident. And first of all, he's trying to find out what happened to these invisible cars. Are they all accounted for? There is this kind of ridiculous conversation he has with someone who works in the department saying, well, how are we supposed to know? Your car's invisible. Well, how are we supposed to find it? This all seems ridiculously convoluted. But if you consider the fact that this is almost certainly intentional, that the sheriff is under the thumb of his evil benefactors from the future, of course, all this subterfuge makes perfect sense. Tommy talks to the sheriff and also notices a familiar pair of boots under one of the bathroom stalls. This is Corbell, who apparently was driving that invisible SUV last week and absconded with Bob. The sheriff mentions, you know what, Tommy, you need a little break. Why don't you just take some paid time off? This is a good piece of advice, even if Tommy plans to continue to do the investigation. At this point, he should be pretty certain that the local police department are in on this plan to take down the Fishers. Flynn travels back to the future and discusses with Wilf her confrontation with Sharice. Wilf kind of mentions, you know what? I got pretty cyber aroused when I saw you going to have that confrontation with Sharice. But to what end? This is where it's revealed that what we're seeing, these people in the streets are actually mostly just projections. And that's part of the reason that they kind of stay off in the background. It's just kind of virtual wallpaper to make you not feel as lonely, considering that maybe, you know, it already seemed like London was pretty sparsely populated. Maybe the jackpot has killed an even larger percentage of the population than we first suspected. Also, some of these ridiculous skylines are partially augmented as well, which speaks to the fact that I was like, I wonder if they'd be able to actually come up with all of this technology in such a short period of time. Explanation one for that, which is legitimate, is that you suddenly have the same amount of wealth in much fewer pockets. So if you had the same amount of wealth in the world for only a fraction of the population, they would no longer need to spend all their money on housing and food. So you can spend all that money on innovation. And I guess that's kind of what has happened here. But also, a lot of this is augmented. Flynn does wonder what other illusions the RI might be using to keep the population in order. The key sequence here is when Wilf and Flynn go to find out who might have been the fabricators of these transmitters that we found in those peripherals back in Alita's 
hideout. They go to a butcher shop. It turns out it's a front for these manufacturers. Flint first challenges them to say, well, you couldn't possibly be high-end enough to be able to enhance my peripheral. They take that as a challenge, and they finally do reveal who they actually are. After a pretty protracted fight sequence here, which is not really that exciting, to be honest, they do finally do start answering some questions. They find out a few things here. One is that Alita obviously did indeed requisition not only this transmitter, but also a way to attach a human eye to a peripheral. When they're alone again, Flynn confronts Wilf about some of these discoveries and asks whether Alita is a neoprimitive, a neoprim. He says he doesn't know. And this all happens during this pretty tender sequence where he's cleaning the blood off of her face. This is very provocative, by the way. If he's intending to not seduce her, he is doing a very bad effort of it. But more importantly here is the fact that there's this tenderness between them. Flynn feels bad for Wilf, who has this dual allegiance to his sister, Alita, adoptive sister, Alita, but also this hatred of the neoprims. Of course, going back to, I believe just last week, we found out that he had massacred the neoprims who had kidnapped or held hostage the students in his school. We have a minor digression here in which we're back in Clanton again. Connor's souped up wheelchair isn't working. He's not able to get the two parts to lock in place, something we've had a problem with for multiple times now. So he should have fixed this earlier, to be honest. And now he's trying to fix it himself with his one arm. He is, of course, very adept and doesn't like asking for help. But someone in the bar has called Macon to come out and help him repair it, which allows him to have a conversation in which Connor starts asking Macon about the headgear that they've printed up for the Fishers. He doesn't really want to talk about it, but Connor says, hey, I've been in it. I know how it works. And is it possible to have a physical body that he can stay in permanently? And Macon says, well, you know, we'd need to have a catheter. You'd need to have some kind of way to have your food fed to you. So it's possible to potentially keep a body minimally viable while they're inside this other virtual body. And given the fact that his body is so broken, he obviously is open to this idea. Meanwhile, back in Lev's house in the 2099 timeline, they're printing up peripheral bodies for Connor and Burton. As we see the printing process, turns out these bodies are extremely complex, not just empty shells, but actually seem to require all these other complex inner workings to be printed up as well. Which makes me think about Westworld. Oh, I said the word I'm not supposed to speak. Also in 2099, we see that Ash is speaking to Ozian in their special encoded language. And she mentions that Didi has been trying to find out what is happening with this virus inside of Flynn's body. And they're tracking her progress. And they start speculating, is it possible that Alita downloaded this technology into the past? Once again... Pretty sure everybody, the reveal is that this is indeed inside that virus itself is the inf encoded information. Speaking of Didi, Tommy is with her and she's checking him for any kind of concussion issues. He has a little PTSD flashback to the car accident while he has his headgear on being tested for this concussion protocol. She's asking him to please let this go. It's getting dangerous, but he really can't. Then we get to maybe the most entertaining aspect of this whole episode, which was Corbell and his wife, Mary and Bob having dinner together. Corbell has not killed Bob, but brought him to his home. Bob turns out has this collar on, and when he does try to attack Corbell, Mary is able to shock him. Mary better have very good reflexes, by the way, <laughs> but luckily she is. They're pretty confident that she will be able to react in time. And even at level three, apparently this thing goes all the way to level 10, they're able to keep him sedate. They do make a delicious steak dinner for him, and Bob does seem to appreciate it. 
don't know how important this part is, although maybe it will be used later in the season, so I will call it out. Now, there is a sequence in which Leon, one of these military friends of Connor's and Burton's, tries to get Connor to share some of the internal PTSD he has from this attack. So they activate their haptics, and he pushes it onto Leon and really takes, knocks him off his feet, literally. I'm not sure how this would work, that in a way, by sharing this flashback with somebody else, it would somehow reduce it in your own mind. Not sure how that would work, but we do get to at least appreciate how traumatic this is to Connor. In 2099, that police inspector, Billings, has arrived at Lev's house. She needs to speak to Lev and Wilf. Lev is trying to get his lawyer to arrive, but the phones have been deactivated, I assume, by the inspector and the police in general. They invite her in, and Lev warns Wilf to just assume that she knows everything already and act accordingly. The inspector does this mental jujitsu where she tells him, well, we could play this out your way. You can call your solicitors. I'll simply arrest Wilf currently for Daniel's murder since his DNA was at the site. And that the entire trial apparently can happen in seven minutes. Approximately, the entire trial could occur and Wilf would be executed. She also seems to know that they already have these other peripherals on site. They've scanned the building and they need to have the peripherals as well as their operators. It's going to be a little tricky to get those operators here, they say. She's not really after Wilf. She's just using that as leverage to get to the bottom of what's actually going on. Back in 2032, Tommy does meet with Burton and warns him that Bob is probably working with Corbell Pickett. Burton gets angry at Tommy and is basically trying to warn him that you don't want any part of this. But Tommy keeps sticking his nose in. Understandably, he can't possibly know how much risk he's under. Corbell is away from the house. He wants to know who are these people who are trying to manipulate them. He needs to know more. And the sheriff is sharing the video from inside of Tommy's car, the conversation they were having just before Tommy was blindsided by Corbell and his invisible SUV, which of course means that Mary is alone with Bob and Bob is extremely resourceful. He's able to smash an aquarium using, I believe, an ashtray or paperweight. Mary shocks him, but it's too late. The water empties out from the aquarium, and when she tries to shock Bob into submission, he grabs her ankle, and she ends up shocking herself. Bob's eyes open, and we know that means bad news for Mary and probably Corbell as well. At some point in 2032, I forgot to bring this up, uh, Burton is basically aware of Connor's, his displeasure with his current body, obviously, and the PTSD he's been experiencing. And it looks like they've printed up some new mechanical legs for him using this technology from the future. I'm pretty sure that Connor will be using these enhanced body parts because I think I saw a trailer for this, like maybe in the trailer that we see him actually putting these on. So we haven't seen that yet. So I assume it will be coming in, hey, there's only two episodes left, so it's gotta be coming soon. Although it looks like in the past, he has not actually used these prosthetics that Flynn has printed up for him. But Burton says, hey, we didn't have this kind of technology before. These are better. So Connor will almost certainly be trying out these in the very near future. Connor and Burton also have a conversation about Connor's thoughts, suicidal thoughts, immediately after the accident occurred. And Connor had basically asked Burton to help him do this, and Con and Burton could not. So he appreciates this fantasy that Connor has that he'll be able to have this permanent life in the future. Remains to be seen how long your body could survive in this scenario, but I do think it will be explored further in the show. As we saw earlier, London has indeed called them back. They need them to come and pilot their peripherals as part of this investigation. And that is where the episode ends. Connor, Burton, and Flynn enter into their future peripherals. And the inspector, 
fills them in and says, so I see you are in some kind of quantum tunnel with the past. You are pilots from the past who are in these current peripherals. And she has many questions for them. And that is the cliffhanger for next week. So this quantum tunnel, as you term it, allows you to communicate with the past, or rather a past, since in our actual past, you didn't. That actually hurts my head, Mr. Zubov. I gather it doesn't hurt yours. It's actually quite simple. The act of connection produces a fork in causality, the new branch causally unique. A stub, as we call them. But why do you? Call them that. It sounds short, nasty, brutish. Wouldn't one expect the Fox New Branch to continue to grow? We do assume exactly that. I'm not sure where the term Imperialism. Might... Calling it a stub makes it a bit easier for us to third world it. And you, I presume, are the formidable Flynn Fisher. Inspector Ainsley Lowbeer of the Metropolitan Police. Quite pleased to make your acquaintance. So this is an interesting development right here that the cards are all on the table. So now we can actually start to hopefully, and I say this as someone who really did not like this episode, I got to tell you at this point, but I do feel like hopefully, hey, we do have some intriguing twists here. This inspector being in on their investigation is, I think, what is going to rescue this series for me. My fear at this point is that this is all just set up for season two, that they've just been setting things up for season two because there is so little that is being developed here. They've introduced so many characters. They've introduced all these plot lines. What is Alita's grand plan? What is Newland's scheme? Who's the good guy and bad guy in this regard? For example, if Alita is purely a neoprim and wants to basically destroy all this technology in the future, can humanity survive without it? Is Newland in contact with the future, for example, and the changes she's trying to make are, you know, as nefarious as she is in the present, maybe this is all for the good of humanity. And then once again, just how do all these stubs work? If every time I communicate with the past, I'm creating multiple stubs, then am I simply interacting with one stub? Is my future just the future of this particular stub? And there are still thousands or millions of other alternate timelines in which the jackpot is occurring, is not occurring, etc. So are we prioritizing one timeline over all others? This goes back to the whole character of Kang in the Marvel universe, where if your future is simply fighting with thousands of other alternate timelines, then what does one particular set of characters and one particular stub really have to do with anything at all? Unless there is someone policing these timelines in the future, trying to trim them down into a single timeline. Check out Loki, by the way, if you haven't watched that already. An excellent, really, the best of the MCU recently, which explores this topic explicitly. That's really the whole entire context of that show. And explores those ideas very, very cleverly, I think, in a way that this show has just raised these questions without exploring them in any way. And as a matter of fact, keeps exploring more. Like what does it mean to transfer your consciousness into another body? What does it mean to interact with the past? What are the consequences of changing one timeline? You have here, interestingly, folks in the past, in the future, manipulating the past as if these characters are simply not real people, but just a video game. And then you have simultaneously Flynn in the past, jumping into this body in the future and basically winning at this real life interactions by pretending it's just a video game. This is interesting, the idea by treating life events like a video game 
you are more successful at what you're actually trying to do. But unexplored here, it's just basically something that is raised. It's just a mechanism to get to the next fight sequence without exploring any of these topics. And that's my frustration with the show. They've raised some tantalizing ideas without exploring them to any extent at all and introduces new characters with agendas that are vague uh, at best. Do not explain to us what their stakes are, what their goals are, why they're at odds with other folks in the same timeline. It's all just so that there can be some twist in the next episode. And those twists aren't that exciting. And then they just pad over all of this with a fight sequence or a shootout at the compound that are not that exciting either. So yes, it's become very frustrating to me these last two or three episodes, even though I really liked last week's episode, by the way, because I felt like they were starting to set up an end game. And I feel like this particular episode is really just wheel spinning. Um, episode four and episode six now have felt like a lot of wheel spinning where we have just the last few minutes of the episode tantalizing the next revelation in the same way that episode four was a lot of filler with just this explanation of the jackpot, literally the, an episode called the jackpot with just minutes of it described there at the end. It did, however, set up an interesting episode five where the show was able to go into a different direction with this Bob character. So maybe we're seeing more of the same here where we have a lot of wheel spinning here. Once again, a lot of just placeholding events in this particular episode. However, it does introduce this investigator and now they're, it's all out in the open. This investigator is theoretically going to help them unravel this plot. She seems to be extremely adept. So maybe, just maybe, we get a very satisfying episode next week where collectively they get to answer a lot of these questions they've raised. And like I said, that episode and of course the finale really will decide whether I would even recommend this show. Of course, if you've been listening to this week to week, you're in it just like I am <laughs> in it till the end because, hey, there's only two more episodes. But I would say, depending on how satisfying that is, I'm pretty certain they're just setting up season two. And will I come back for season two? Really, really depends on those next two episodes. All right. Next, I'm going to have my review for 1899 and then some spoilers. And I will warn you when I get into the spoiler section because I have to talk about the end of that series for sure. That is a show that really works or doesn't work depending on your reaction to the finale. Before I fully pivot into that 1899 review, though, I do want to once again call out, especially after my continued disappointment with the peripheral and just having reviewed in this same feed, Don't Worry Darling, which is actually a science fiction film, minor spoilers if you didn't know, but it might make that title more appealing to you if you're listening to this. And now with 1899, I just want to call out that if you want to see a time-bendy, twisty science fiction series that I think really sticks the landing in a way that none of these other projects have, do check out The Devil's Hour on Amazon Prime. I don't think enough people have seen this show. It does get off to a slow start. It does surprise you with its sci-fi direction that it goes into, but definitely check that out. And whereas these other projects have almost always disappointed me with how they stick their landings, this is the exact opposite. Starts off slow, ends at its strongest point. And that is a show that I am definitely curious to see a second season. So once again, The Devil's Hour, all of it's available currently on Amazon Prime, only six episodes. And if you watch it, they'll probably make another season. Has an excellent setup for a second season. Six hours ago, we received a message. We believe this comes from the Prometheus. You think the passengers, they're still alive? They're 
Capitan, we paid good money for this trip. Seven days to get to New York, no detours. Helion. Må vi blive bevaret fra det onde. Fra al verdens falskhed. So is a new series from the creators of the German science fiction horror series Dark, which became one of those first real breakout foreign Netflix shows, has developed quite a reputation, and maybe indicative of my reaction to this particular series is the fact that I've never actually been able to get through all of Dark. And for anybody who's seen both, they openly state that Dark is the better series. And maybe the fact that I really couldn't fully engage with that show speaks to the fact that this, which is a much lesser version of that, did not really work for me. So with that as some context, I do think the series looks incredible. It was shot using the volume. This is the first Netflix show, I believe, that has used the volume. For those who don't know what that is, the volume is basically a sphere of extremely high definition screens. And basically you can put your actors into these virtual backdrops. There's two advantages here. One, and by the way, just some context for this, one of the first big projects to use this, although the technology already existed, was The Mandalorian. The reason they decided to use this existing technology was because of the reflective nature of The Mandalorian's armor. So they tried a few different ways. One was to have everything CGI. The second, of course, was if they were shooting with cameras, you could see the cameras and the camera operators reflected on the armor. So they could digitally remove it, but then that was kind of tedious as well. So they decided to experiment with this volume technology. And what's kind of really amazing about this technology is it theoretically can significantly reduce the cost of filmmaking. First of all, rather than doing everything in post-production where you you basically have all your actors on green screens and then they have to lay the scenery over it afterwards, you actually allow the people to be on a set that they can interact with. And I have to assume, if you're an actor, being in like The Mandalorian, for example, and feeling like you are in this extremely high detailed version of this desert landscape has gotta be more effective than just looking at tennis balls on sticks and then assuming, just having to imagine in your mind what this is all gonna look like in the future. So I think this is a very, very cool innovation and it will allow you, for example, to shoot things like people on the decks of a ship with this storm in the background, and you don't need to, A, have an actual storm, put people on actual ships, which is extremely expensive, extremely complicated, and also just have people sit there on this brightly lit set, and just assuming that there's going to be CGI rain and CGI backdrops in the future, you can actually have a high-definition storm, and you can actually put some fans on and have the water whipping across their faces, so they have a pretty realistic environment to react to, even though most of it is virtual. Very interesting, by the way, that this is the technology that's being used in this series. And I'll tell you why I find it so interesting, but I'll have to leave the reason I find it so interesting until we get to the actual spoilers of the series. As for the series itself, what's it about? 
It is about a bunch of immigrants. If you watch this show without the default English dub, you'll hear them speaking in all different languages. You have Spanish actors, you have German actors, we have British actors, French actors who are all speaking in their native tongues. The default, by the way, is to hear it with an English dub. It is the most efficient way to get through the series, but maybe not the best to engage with the performances. I find dubbing a distraction. So take that as part of your decision-making as to whether to turn off the dubbing or not. They're on this ship headed towards America when about halfway through, they get a distress signal from another ship, a ship that had disappeared. They get diverted to this other ship. And when they go and explore, this starts feeling like Event Horizon, where they go and explore this ghost ship and aboard it, they find almost nobody. Actually, they only find one person, a little boy with a pyramid that he carries around. And who is this little boy? And our main protagonist, although there's a few of them, is a woman called Mora, who feels some affinity to protect this boy, even as the passengers start to turn on him. Some strange things start happening on their ship once this landing party returns. The captain decides to tow the ship back to Europe. There's not enough coal to tow a ship all the way to America, so they need to return back to Europe. This angers a lot of the passengers who are trying to escape their circumstance back in Europe. And we get introduced to different characters or groups of characters on the ship with their own agendas, their own secrets they're trying to keep hidden. And what ensues is a battle for control of the ship. Are they going to return to Europe? Are they going to continue to America? And really all of this pivots around this young boy that they found on the other ship who becomes a scapegoat for all the bad that starts happening on the ship. So you can get a little more context if you watch the trailer for this show, if that sounds intriguing to you. I'd say if you liked Dark, you would like this show. I'm not sure you're going to love it as much as you love Dark. But I do think it has some of the same appeal that that series has. I think it is beautifully shot with this volume technology. The performances are pretty solid across the board. I do recommend turning off the dubbing to get the best out of these performances. Sometimes having these very canned dubbing sessions can make some of the performances feel very stilted. But for my money, the twist at the end of this series is not sufficient to make the rest of it worthwhile. So if you've only made it a few episodes in and you're not that engaged, I don't know if hanging in there for the twist is going to satisfy you. I personally did not find it satisfying. And this is a show uh, uh, that really pivots significantly on how much you buy this final twist. I'll show you the truth. Trust me. Have a seat. I know you think it's your mother who's trapped in here. This is not her prison. It's yours. This may hurt. All right, so now I'm going to get into the spoilers of this show. I think if you like these type of time paradox type shows, this would be something that would appeal to you. Although we go a very, very long distance plot-wise to travel a very short distance logically. Although I still did enjoy watching the show. It pulled me through. I did find it compelling enough to want to know what the final resolution was. But once I got there, I didn't get enough out of that where I would tune in for a second season. And that's basically my final judgment. I did enjoy watching this. I was curious enough to make it to the end. 
I would not watch a second season of this if they made one. All right, so here is the twist and why this whole thing falls apart for me when it gets there. Over the course of the series, we discover that these different characters have these compartments under each one of their bunks on the ship. Entering into those basically enters them into their own memories, into a mind space that has their past in it. So obviously this would be a huge space on that ship. So there's something more going on here. We also see that Mora's dad, who in her own recollections is this tyrannical doctor running a psychiatric institute, seems to be the one who's controlling this scenario in this fantasy version of the show. And by the way, just to be clear, there's a sequence in I think episode three or four, just to kind of fill in all the blanks here, where the vast majority of the crew jump overboard. So they are quote unquote committing suicide, which is not actually true. What it actually means is that they're exiting this virtual reality, probably entering into another one, which apparently is always the same. It's this cruise ship that they're boarding as uh, passengers or crew members, which leaves like a skeleton crew of characters back on this original timeline, original storyline. And what is a storyline? It apparently is a shared delusion. It seems to be mechanical when you're in it, which once again is questionable here because they can climb inside the wires. They can reprogram what's there. They can literally find the boundaries of each one of these virtual spaces and remove panels and interact with it physically. This is something, by the way, that I guarantee you will get a pass in this show. But once again, minor spoilers for Don't Worry Darling. There are many critics of that film, which got mostly negative reviews, talking about, well, how is it that you can exit your mind space through a physical location? That seems ridiculous. And yet here we have this mental space that's being exited through a fantasy of a physical location with walls and wires and escape hatches, which here we are now in spoilers, which I think is kind of fascinating because think about what they're actually doing in shooting the show. They're shooting these actors in this volume, which is a bunch of high definition screens that surround the actors. And that is kind of what is being shown in the film itself. So the show itself becomes a metaphor for making this show in its own way. And in that way, it's kind of interesting. You know, you can basically take every single film that was ever made and think about it as a metaphor for filmmaking. And here we have it yet again, where you can say, well, this is about making this show, putting people on these sets of the volume, these fake backgrounds, and making them pretend to live an alternate life, which is what actors do every single day. Anyway, so it turns out that Mora has created this mental space because if we are to believe what we're seeing here, her son was dying. The way that she's able to keep him alive is by creating this virtual world where there's a virtual son. Her and her husband have created this space. And apparently it's a shared delusion that a bunch of people on an actual ship, but it's a spaceship and it's not 1899, it's 2099. And they are sharing this linked fantasy of being on this cruise ship in 1899. And apparently Mora and her husband have created this space to keep their son alive. This doesn't seem to make sense because if their intention was to hijack this reality to keep their son alive, what is it with the dad and the son covertly wandering into each one of these iterations to retrieve the mom, to wake her up. But theoretically, if she wakes up, she ends the illusion in which the son can survive because the son, I think, is not living anymore, if I read this correctly. So do they want to wake her up? Does the grandfather want to wake her up? If the grandfather and the father both want her to wake up, then why are they working against each other? They seem to be 
antagonists to each other in this. But more befuddling to me, far more confusing, is the idea that if this is just a way to keep everybody's mind at peace while they're on a very long intergalactic voyage, why would they choose this 1899 framework? And more than that, why would they choose these tortured backstories? Maybe, and maybe if there's another season, we'll find out more of this. Maybe we'll explore a different character's backstory each time. Maybe each one of these backstories is a metaphor for what they're actually dealing with in the real world, set in the context of 1899. But at this moment, without that, I can't imagine that someone would choose this fantasy history of, for example, having been raped brutally and having to kill your attacker so that you had to escape on the ship, or that your brother inadvertently instigated this attack by having a sexual dalliance with another boy. Who would invent these torturous backstories for themselves while they're in this headspace? And then did they all agree? How did they even say like, okay, let's say that this is just something that's been manifested in this long journey within the context of this 1899 framework. And just to call out one more, by the way, before I move on, is this one black soldier and this white soldier who stole someone else's identity. And then only this other uh, black soldier knew who he was. And he basically was scapegoated as a deserter by this other soldier. But it's not 1899. It's 2099. We assume that racial relations are better by then. And it may be a metaphor for some other betrayal in their friendship. But once again, why have this shared delusion set in 1899, set it in 2099, but a fictional version of 2099? Or would different people have different fantasy versions to spend their whatever it is going to be there 70 80 100 years in stasis that they're going to be traveling through space it just raises so many questions of the logistics of this that just don't make sense would you maybe they all opted in to go on this ship because you know maybe there's like a brochure that says hey come to prometheus you'll be on a 1899 ship and these are the storylines you'll be participating in and people opt in and say, that sounds great. That's that's the fantasy I want to spend the next hundred years of my life in. And then maybe it only became this nightmare because Mora has somehow hijacked the storyline and in corrupting it has made it into a hell for everybody. That's kind of what's implied by her father's description of the events of the show. But I am doing a lot of the work of filling this in. And once again, maybe the creators of the show will explain some of these things in season two. But I did not get enough out of season one to want to make that investment in time in season two. So that's where I landed. I did once again find it handsomely designed and interestingly enough, as it revealed itself in stranger and stranger ways, I was continuously intrigued enough to keep watching the next episode, but I just honestly am not interested enough with what is remains to be defined to want to come back for a season two. I do hope you enjoyed it more than I did. And if you have another interpretation, I honestly do believe that the end of this show does leave things up to interpretation. If you have an alternate interpretation of all of this, please do drop us a line, need some introduction at gmail.com with your thoughts on this series. And by the way, I've never finished the Dark series, but there's been speculation that this is in the same universe as that Dark series. So maybe if you finish both, maybe you have a theory that that series may very well fill in some of these blanks. If that's the case, let me know as well. All right, so that's the end of this episode of our show. Once again, make sure you stick around, keep listening. We will be talking about the seventh episode of The Peripheral next week, 
I do hope it is a stronger episode. And then only one more beyond that. For me, more importantly, the finale of Andor, a series that I very much think is really one of the best things that's on TV right now. Definitely catch up on that if you haven't already. We will be discussing that in next week's episode. Maybe while watching some of the post-Thanksgiving games, you can listen to our podcast as well during the commercial breaks, perhaps. Do have a happy Thanksgiving. Do check out our White Lotus recap episode, which will be dropping on Monday. And stay tuned. We will be covering a couple of, I think, intriguing series in December. I don't want to announce them officially because I haven't heard confirmation that they're actually coming. So do stay tuned if you want to know what we'll be covering in December. But definitely coming in January, these days are solid. Uh, Second week of January, we will be covering week to week, Your Honor on Showtime, the Brian Cranston thriller series, as well as The Last of Us, the video game adaptation coming to HBO Max, featuring The Mandalorian himself, Pedro Pascal. So that's coming in January, as well as some forthcoming announcements for some series coming in December that I'm very curious about. And I do hope you stick around for all of that.